Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we're going to the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, one of the big things that we're going to be talking about is the the context of the book of, of Matthew. You can read the book of Matthew in just a few hours. And it's actually spanning a period of time for the uh, life of Jesus Christ and the Apostles that uh, includes years and years of effort. And uh, if we're going to think that he was just kind of like an itinerant pastor going around and preaching to people so that they would have an ideology about Christ and a philosophy or a religion about Christ, and then they would go off and, uh, you know, do whatever they were doing before, but then go to meetings where they gather together once a week and talk about Jesus and bow their heads and maybe sing some songs and and uh, that was the, the 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 basic philosophy of Jesus Christ except for the fact that it was a lot more it changed the whole uh contour of society it changed history in in ways that uh, most people are completely unaware of uh, you you could study it and study it and study it and you would not see all the ramifications in the lives of the people. Uh, but it was absolutely essential for the destiny of man because something was about to take place. It was already starting to take place. It had been going on for, uh, I could say, centuries. It started, but of course the momentum in history often uh, gains on the people. But uh, Rome had risen to this great empire. Uh, it was not the only empire. There were other people, like we were talking about, you know, the uh, where the Magi came from and where John the Baptist evidently was. And if you go back in our, our early episodes talking about John the Baptist and and what he was doing in Parthia and why Jesus Christ and uh, John the Baptist were... Highly esteemed in Parthia. There's actually writings about Jesus making it all the way to India uh, and uh, having controversies there, uh, which is absolutely reasonable. There's actually stories about Jesus going up to Gaul. Uh, but these aren't stories that are in the Gospels, what we call the Bible, the Gospels, which is actually, you know, if you hand wrote the Bible out, uh, it would be hard to carry. Uh, especially if you were doing it on, you know, like vellum, uh, which is a lot heavier than a piece of linen newspaper. Uh, 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 but uh, the reality is, is that uh, there's a lot of information about Jesus Christ and other sources, which you don't have to take as gospel. But we also have a lot of information about the history of the times, what was going on. What was going on with Herod? What was going on with uh, uh, the different Caesars that uh, lived either shortly before or during or after Jesus Christ? All of this sets a scene upon which Christ is born. Uh, I just answered a question on Korah last night 
where they were asking about uh, Jesus being the Son of God, and they talk about a council that took place in 451. They didn't quite get the name right of the council, but uh, that that would be petty, although there were people who pointed that out. But uh, they talk about Jesus being called the Son of God and the divinity of Jesus. And it was a real hot topic. But I went down, there was like 60 different responses. And uh, nobody seemed to understand why he was called the Son of God. And why that was such a controversy with Rome. They they knew it was a controversy with Rome. Uh, Many Christians were arrested because they prayed to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Well, why did why did the why did the Romans care? Uh, what why you know Rome was a government, right? Uh, I mean, it had its free bread and its circuses that were sponsored by government taxation. Usually, they were smart enough to tax people outside of their country, but uh, they. they they were, this was the way in which the, a political system existed. Why did they care what people said, you know, in, in their little home churches? Because the, most of the, the early church was consisting of ten family congregations. And since they didn't have any cathedrals or big church buildings or even uh, Jehovah Witness halls or, you know, without windows or whatever... <laughs> They they didn't have those things, but they did have homes, and ten families could meet in homes, usually the wealthier of the ten families, because that would be the bigger home. And uh, they also met in other places like catacombs. What? Why were they meeting in catacombs? Why were they meeting in graveyards? We've talked about that. And But it was small groups most of the time. I mean, there was a big group, group at Pentecost uh, where thousands were becoming these Christians, and we've talked about the effect of becoming a Christian. If you if you became a Christian, you got the baptism of these guys called Christians eventually. They didn't were called Christians yet. They were just most of them were Jews, but they were followers of Christ, and uh, they uh, got baptized. So what happened when they got baptized? Well, they were cast out of the social welfare system set up by Herod and the Pharisees. They they could no longer go to that system if they needed social aid or welfare. I mean, that was a table of which they did not eat, according to Paul. Uh, because it was a snare and a trap, according to Paul and according to David and according to Proverbs. To eat at those tables of rulers who exercise authority one over the other was a snare and a trap. Now, this is a theme throughout the Bible. Uh, the fact is, is this is how the bondage of Egypt came about. Is that they had to eat at the table of Pharaoh, who was a ruler. And when they ate at the table of Pharaoh, they went into bondage. And they went into that bondage because they wouldn't hear the anguished cries of their brother. That's what Reuben tells us in Genesis that they went into that bondage because they had to eat at the table of Pharaoh. And the deal was that 20% of their labor would now belong, one-fifth of their labor would now belong to the government of Pharaoh. 
And that pharaoh died, and another pharaoh came, and another pharaoh came, and and they still owed their labor, one-fifth of their labor. Now, taskmasters increased, and, and the pressure of collecting that one-fifth of their labor, the value of that labor, I- increased. And uh, this was called the, the bondage of Egypt. This was, And we were never to go back to that bondage again. Of course... Today, the whole world has gone back to that bondage. Every every country has an income tax. It might be 20% of your labor. It might be 10% of your labor. Uh, in the higher ranges, it could be 30 or 40% of your labor. Now, that that wasn't the way it worked for Israel. In Israel, or in Egypt, it was a flat tax. It was 20% of your labor in a given year belonged to the government. And that was the bondage of Egypt. And, and of course, like I say, it got worse and worse. And this is the story of this whole thing with Exodus and Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy tells us to never go back that way. And if you want to have a ruler in your country, you know, some sort of executive officer or king or somebody, or a commander-in-chief, that's what Saul was originally. He was, he was chosen to be the commander-in-chief of the military because they had to fight these Philistines. And so that's why he was chosen. I mean, his office expanded over a period of time, but that's why he was chosen. But... It tells you in the Bible back in Deuteronomy that if you choose to have somebody that can exercise authority over you, because they had no king for hundreds of years, but if you choose to have somebody who could do that, whether you call him a king or prime minister, you know, like Trudeau or, you know, a president like Joe Biden or, it, that really doesn't matter. He's, he's the executive officer who, and in the United States he's the executive officer and commander in chief. And he also appoints all the judges throughout the United States. All those offices were held by Caesars. And this is, but they didn't have Caesars for the first 400 to 500 years of the Roman Empire. There was no imperator. There was no uh, commander in chief of all of the military. The military is mostly a militia. And, uh, that's the way their government operated. But now, all of a sudden, Christians come along and they're being arrested because they're praying to Jesus as the Son of God. And like I said, the Son of God, and this is what I told the people at Korah, the Son of God was a title that was given to Caesar. Augustus Caesar was called the Son of God. Julius Caesar, in a way, was also called the Son of God. I mean, before he became a general, he was a priest of the temple of, you know, the the, the basic temple uh, in in Rome that they depended upon for their welfare system. And he funded it while he became a general with with millions and millions and millions of dollars and value of denarii, of course, is the, the kind of funds they used. But they, he got that money from selling uh, galls into slavery, mostly women and children. He sold into slavery. And he got huge amounts of revenue. 
He also stole all the gold and anything of value that belonged to the people that he defeated and destroyed. He killed most of the men. And um, he made lots of money, but he, he was clever. He didn't keep the money for himself. He, he put it in the temple. And in the temple then had lots of funds to have feasts and banquets and what they call feasts or banquets is basically distribution of large sums of food from, you know, from meat to cheese to wine, actually cash. He would give out cash to Romans who would receive that. And there was a huge amount of bookkeeping involved in it. But because he was the head of that, he was called the Son of God. And if you wanted to be a member of that system, which was somewhat depending on coveting, you know, whatever the Gauls had, or eventually whatever the Germanic tribes had, or eventually whatever the Jews had, you had to covet that, because that's where your benefits were going to come from, is by taking away from those people. And and you didn't want to hear the cries of their anguish, you know, when when Julius Caesar was, you know, bombarding the Gauls with uh, firebrands that it was catapulting over into their camp, and they were begging just to be let to go by because they were migrating to another area. And uh, But Caesar was relentless. He kept kept bombarding them. And he says, well, this is mostly women and children in this train. And, and he just kept bombarding them. And eventually they attacked the Romans and the Romans defeated them. But he baited them. It was entrapment. <laughs> we have laws against that. And uh, that people wanted to arrest him and try him for war crimes. But so many people were pleased with him as the son of God. As, you know, the the head of their social welfare system. That they just excused his crimes. But Jesus comes along and he's being called the son of God. He's kind of second in line because Caesar had been called the son of God for years and years before Jesus was even born. And uh, so now, all of a sudden, you know, Jesus, you know, Mary's told that Jesus is, according to Matthew, that Jesus is, by the angel, says that this, he's going to be called the Son of God. What was the difference between him and Caesar? Well, Caesar provided the welfare of the people through forced offerings, compelled offerings. And Jesus provided for the people through free will offerings. So there you have the distinction between the Corbin of Christ and the Corbin of the Pharisees. One was by registration and forced offerings, and the other one was by free will offerings. It was a sort of registration, but it wasn't an oath or a pledge. If you go back to Proverbs and Psalms, I mean, David said that what should have been for their welfare had become a snare and a trap. And Paul quotes David on that subject. But you go ask the average Christian, they haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Because they don't understand the history, the context in which the Bible was written. So we're giving you that context in which the Bible was written. And we're trying to relate it to everyday things that are going on in your life, in your father's and your mother's life before you, 
Maybe even your grandfather and your grandmother's life before that. Because just like the Pharaoh offered free bread to the people, you know, from the from the treasury of the United States, Pharaoh offered free bread like FDR. Or FDR offered it like the Pharaoh. Except FDR was a rich guy, but he wasn't taking the money out of his pocket. He was taking it out of the government coffers. If you just went back, you know, what was that in 30, 1930s? 1933? Uh, if you go back, you know, to the days of Davy Crockett, you know, back in the days of the Alamo, you know, uh, you'll see that Davy Crockett was saying no. And, and he knew that because somebody, one of the people in his constituency, Horatio Bunce, we have the article up, look up Davy Crockett at Preparing You. And I, I recently heard Rand Paul quoting from Davy Crockett on the subject. Well, of course, we were quoting it back when Rand Paul was still a teenager, probably. <laughs> but Horatio Bunce was quoting it back before the, you know, back in the days of, you know, around the time of the Alamo. Before the Alamo. That people should not look to the government for their social welfare. Because it robs their neighbor. It, it, it's a government welfare. Especially governments that are supported by forced offerings, which is what taxation is, is a forced sacrifice, is a covetous practice. And, and we're going to see this when we get into Matthew 7, right away. That we're going to have to ask you, when did covetous practices of desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor through men who exercise authority... When did that become okay? Well, actually, it never did become okay with God. It never became okay with Jesus. It certainly wasn't okay with John the Baptist. It wasn't okay with the early church. It wasn't okay with any of the apostles. It wasn't okay with Paul. But it seems to be okay with everybody today. And they're still calling themselves Christians. Well, it can't be. That doesn't, that does not compute. <laughs> that does not fit. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to look at this and we're going to put the gospel of the kingdom into context of the time and tell you some of the meaning of some of the words. And of course, we've already done that. Uh, we'll have most of these recordings that we've been making on this subject, uh, the morning recordings and the afternoon recordings that we make. Trying to go into all these different aspects so you can see it from all these different directions. And of course you can get us on podcasts and Spotify and, you know, just, you know, you get a long trip, just plug it in and you can listen to Keys of the Kingdom. And we'll tell you all these different things that most people won't tell you. Which of course may seem to be attacking your delusions, but we're not, we, we wouldn't want to, you know, if, if I saw you driving for toward a cliff, I would say, hey, you know, the, the, the bridge is out. Don't, don't go that way. <laughs> and uh, 
And I, I might shout it at you. I, I might put my hands up in the air and wave them. Hey, the, the bridge is out. Don't go that way. But uh, I'm not attacking your delusion. I'm trying to save your life. I'm trying to save your soul. By preaching the gospel that Jesus was preaching. You know, because he, he eventually he was attacking their delusion. Because they thought they were following Moses. They had been so deceived that they thought they were following Moses. And they were actually workers of iniquity. And of course Jesus warns us that in, in the final days. That uh, a lot of people would think that they were on Jesus' side. Preaching Jesus and doing great things in Jesus' name. But they were actually prophets of the beast. And they were workers of iniquity. And they didn't even know Jesus. Now, to go and tell somebody that that's what they are, they're not going to like that. Well, I'm not telling anybody that's what they are. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. And you, you know, if the boot fits, <laughs> well, then you you can take those boots off and repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yeah, I, I listened to a guy just before, or not just before, or quite a while before, early this morning, put it on in the background while I was uh, talking uh, and and making ready for this show and the next show and the next show, etc., trying to get ahead on the, on the whole program of going through Matthew. And it's uh, Sepulosky, I think his name is, Dr. Robert uh, Sepulsky, Sepulsky, maybe that's it. He's a professor at Stanford University. And he talks a great deal about stress and hormones and, you know, secretion of different uh, types of hormones and everything. And, uh, the you know, the neurological development and consequences of stress and poverty in your life. and How it can affect how the brain of your child and your womb grows based on the way in which you handle stress. And he's come to the conclusion that there is no God, and we have no free will, and, uh, you know, he's an atheist. Now, most most really good scientists eventually realize that there is a God because they know the material so closely, that so the complexity of the human mind and the body and nature, that they realize there has to be something more because there's no way that this could all come about just because of a big bang. There has to be another influence, an unseen mover moving in this. And of course, that's where your free will choice is at. Is If you plug into that unmoved mover, uh, as opposed to simply your own knowledge, your own information, your own senses and experience. If you plug into only that, well, then, pretty much, you are, you have no free will. But if you choose to plug into this other thing that seems to be flowing through all this life we see everywhere on the planet, then something else is influencing your your choices or your seemingly no choice. 
And now suddenly you have choice because you've made that choice as to what you're going to plug into. So when we look at Matthew, we're going to look and see what you can plug into and unplug from. But we'll do that when we return. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, just a brief note on the Sapolsky, uh, this professor from Stanford University. He talks a, a great deal about dopamine and the release of dopamine and how you you practice uh, certain activities will release that dopamine and how you deal with stress and short-term and long-term. And uh, uh, that, you know, once you... If you if you push the button and you get your dopamine, if you do the action, the thought, the process where you get your dopamine, the next time that same thing repeats itself, you won't get as much dopamine. It will become less and less. But if there is what he calls, uh, you know, this adding of maybe or what I'll call maybe factor is that you might not get the dopamine every time you do this or think this particular way. Uh, that not, Then when you get it, it's, it's way more exhilarating. For some reason or other, it resets. And, of course, that's basically what that is, is fasting. It's a testing of the Spirit, so to speak. And, of course, we see that in the Gospel. So I'm mentioning that this mental process because that's part of the environment of the Gospel. Your brain, how you hear it, how you analyze it, how you think about things like Jesus and the gospel. Uh, all those things are going to affect the way in which you perceive it. And they will control the way you, you perceive it based on what is already in your mind. And the patterns in your mind that already exist. The habits in your mind. The cultural built habits in your mind. And so, if you create this maybe factor uh, in your pursuit of happiness, and that's another thing where he talks about the pursuit of happiness is the happiness of pursuit. And I thought that was kind of a catchy little phrase, and he thought it was too. But uh, the reality I've been talking about that is that seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is also a pursuit. And, and assuming that it, whether it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, if we associate th- that phrase with the kingdom of heaven, we it's the kingdom of happiness, isn't it? And so, and of course, we just saw in the uh, Beatitudes where it says, "Blessed are this and blessed are that." That the word there, "blessed," is actually "happy is he who is poor in spirit." And so. Again, we're, if we're pursuing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we're pursuing that happiness. You know, that the happiness of those different beatitudes. Because we're pursuing those attitudes. And those attitudes become part of our environment in which we act and react with whatever goes on in the world around us. Which why it's sometimes important to look at what was going on in the world around the apostles and around the early church. What was happening then? Because history repeats itself and it's going to give us an insight into 
the activities that go on in our own lives. And so, uh, and at the present time, in, in the not too distant past and in the not too distant future. So having that ability to know that bad things happen, but good things can come out of them, can protect us from the negative effects of stress and depression. As a matter of fact, there shouldn't even be a depression if you're in that process of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which we've talked about in other places. But this maybe factor we actually see in in the Gospels and in, in the Epistles where Jesus is clearly saying that you know, in John 5.34, But I received not the testimony from men, but these things I say that ye might be saved. Well, that's the, 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 that's the, the that, that factor, that may be factor. You might be saved. Everybody wants to think that they're automatically saved. And, of course, they're not going to know until, you know, the second coming or death or whatever it is that they're waiting for. But the fact is they can know. And of course, you know, just like I said, if you read the born again clause in John and you read the verses right after that, you can tell whether or not you're born again by the criteria that you look for, which is also mentioned in James and really mentioned over and over again in Paul in those long lists of things that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But we see Paul also bringing up in Romans 10, 1, Brethren, my heart desire the prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And we see it again in Thessalonians. Uh, the Gentiles that they might be saved. And the love of truth that they might be saved. In, in Thess- Second Thessalonians. So it's this idea of might be saved is is certainly... Part of the theme of the New Testament. Of course, it's also part of the theme of the Old Testament. Which we will clearly see showing up as we go. But what is the factor? Where is that choice that we can make? Uh, Where is that free will choice? It's not in all the details of everything that we do from day to day. I mean, we think, well, I decided to do this. And we ask, why did you decide to do that? And they'll say, well, because of this and because of that. And I thought about this. And all what they're now is they're reiterating. They're convincing themselves that they actually chose this. They already decided that this is what they wanted to do. But now they're making up all the excuses as to why they wanted to do it. But the reality is is that we don't make as many choices as we would like to think. We make a choice as to whether we will look at the light, look at ourselves, know thyself. That's a that's something that's been coming up a lot. Know thyself. You can't know thy enemy until you know yourself. But this the the process requires that you are going to see the by the light that you're not going to live in darkness which goes back to the born again if that you have to be living in the light and love the light 
Well, the light reveals our own error. So we have to be willing to see when we are wrong or when we went down the wrong way. The guy who doesn't want to admit that he took the wrong turn will continue going the wrong way for a much longer period of time. (laughs) And you don't want to be that guy. But back in Matthew 6, we saw in verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. I mean, we probably ought to look at that word single. What do they mean single? I mean, you have one eye or no, you know, focused, willing to see the truth, not turn to the left, not turn to the right, but see the truth, see the light, see everything that the light exposes. Then the body will be full of light if we're willing to see the truth. Because the truth and the way and the light, they're, they're, they're same, same, uh, items of, uh, perception. They're, they're the same thing. Just a little different way of looking at the same thing. In verse 23, he says, but if thine eye be evil, you know, in other words, not willing to see the light, the whole body shall be full of darkness. The whole body. If you block out the light, the shadow that that blocking of the light will pass through the whole body, the whole mind. And then you will be more easily fooled, more subject to mass formation of psychosis. You will be deceived more and more. Just today, somebody sent me, because I guess it's something that Tucker Carlson talked about is uh, George Floyd. Evidently, he says, evidently it's now come out that George Floyd in the autopsy didn't show any sign of bruising, uh, asphyxiation, that it appears that he died of an overdose of drugs in a lifetime of taking drugs. Like this is some remarkable revelation. I read it a few days afterwards because I looked up the Hennepin, Hennepin County coroner published his... Uh, preliminary findings and then once the toxicology uh, information came in he published that too just a couple days afterwards you could look that up and he was saying no sign of bruising or trauma to the throat or to the windpipe nothing to suggest strangulation or dying of asphyxiation that he died of a drug overdose which we see at the beginning of the, when he was originally resisting arrest, which we had video of that originally. That disappeared almost immediately. But you actually see the fentanyl pill in his mouth when he's talking. And he swallowed it. it which is something he had done six months before when he was stopped by police. That he had it in his mouth, because there's video of that as well. And he swallowed it. <laughs> and he had enough fentanyl in him to kill me two times over because he's a big guy and of course what what would you hear coming out of somebody's mouth when they were dying of fentanyl intoxication they would be saying things like I can't breathe and of course George Floyd killed himself 
Somebody's in jail for 40 years now. And he didn't kill anybody. He didn't even uh, bruise the guy's neck. He wouldn't put any weight on it. You can actually see that. Anybody who wants to see it can see it in the videos. But people who don't want to see the truth are, are willing to block out the truth who only want to see things that cooperate their truth. They will live in darkness. And they will be subject to mass formation of psychosis. About that, about COVID, about vaccinations, about the Ukraine, about the economy, about religion, about covetous practices. They just won't see it. Because they live in darkness. And the guy who brings the light into the room he becomes the enemy. Which, of course, is what Jesus was doing when he attacked their delusion in verse 24 of Matthew 6. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. And, of course, this is why Christ and Christians were persecuted. They were the light in the world. They were taking care of the needy of their society through faith, hope, and charity. They were choosing to care about their neighbor rather than to covet their neighbor's goods. And this is what made them a peculiar people. This is what made them Christians. It wasn't that they said they believed in Jesus. It's that they actually walked according to the way of Jesus. They were in the pursuit of happiness. And they were happy to pursue that happiness. Which is their master, Jesus the Christ. Who was their king. And so, anyway, when we start in looking in here now at Matthew 7. These are the decrees of the Christ, of the King. It's a continuation of what we've already read in Matthew 6. But he begins it with, Judge not that ye be not judged. Which goes back to what we were saying. You know, the brothers of Joseph did not hear his cries of anguish. So, when they sold them into bondage, they were destined to go into bondage themselves. And, of course, that's exactly why they went into bondage. And and Reuben points it out in Genesis. But people don't want to see it. That They think that somehow God wanted them to go into bondage uh, to save them from the famine. Well, Joseph could have saved them from the famine. They could have been storing up grain themselves. But they chose to throw their brother into bondage so they would go into bondage. And, of course, that's why everybody in the world today is in bondage, because they were willing to covet their neighbor's goods. They were willing to turn their neighbor into human resources. You know, so they could have free education and somebody take care of their parents and, you know, get Medicare, Medicaid. They wanted all those things. And uh, they were willing to get them by forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. 
And so they looked to men who exercised authority one over the other to take away from their neighbors so they could have all these wonderful benefits. But Christ clearly says they were not to be that way. But they chose to be that way. And so that's why the world is in the state that it's in. That's why this mass formation of psychosis is so common. It's because we don't live in the light. We don't want to see the light. It's inconvenient. And we want to believe that we're saved. You know, he says that he, he said all this, did all this, so that you might be saved. And that you, the idea that you can just say, Lord, Lord, and be saved? No. Jesus says, no, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. So verse 2 goes on to say, for with what judgment ye judge? Because he's telling you not to judge, lest you be judged. But then he asks, for what, with what judgment ye, ye judge? Ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you. Well, the word that we see there, judgment, in the, in the Greek is krima, which is translated judgment. It's also translated damnation, condemnation, to be condemned, to go to the law, it actually says. But the definition is a decree, a judgment. Now, if we look at uh, the word judgment in the Old Testament, it's going to be in uh, a different language in the Hebrew. And, and that judgment in the Hebrew is better translated precedent. Because that's what, sometimes it's translated decrees. It has to do with the statutes of Moses were the judgments of Moses. That he said that in this case, uh, this is what the way we would look at this and in this case we would look at this if you created a hazard and somebody was injured then you become responsible for that injury because you should have known better than to dig that pit or make a crummy balcony or make a balcony with a railing that first sign you push on it you fall off and and so you could be held accountable for the what you create the dangers that you create so you should have an eye looking to protect those people around about you so that, you know, they don't fall off your balcony or fall into a pit or or get gored by a bull. All these things in the statutes of Moses are trying to explain the precedent. Because Moses had already turned over the court system of Israel to the people, to people's courts. They would sit down and judge. Okay, this guy did this. So what do we do about this guy doing this? Is this wrong? Did this guy do something wrong? Did he break a law? I mean, the laws were already written before Moses even came about. They're written in nature. Now, he, he showed us in the Ten Statements about the law that you know, these, this is the outline of the law. But how do you apply it on a day-to-day basis? Well, that's why he, he put the people in charge of doing that. Now, they had an appeal system so that if you didn't get a good trial locally, you could appeal it up, and that was the cities of refuge. But without going off on too much of a tangent, 
Moses had turned the courts over to the people uh, so that they would take care of one another. Uh, and that's that was the plan from the beginning. Although Joseph, uh, Moses needed a little bit of help from Jethro in order to figure that out. But the people needed something to judge by. And so he wrote the statutes, which are really the precedents of Moses. And it covered a lot of different situations. And the people could look that up and say, well, but how do they really know? How? Because every situation is a little bit different. But this was the invention of a jury system. Now, juries actually existed long before that in history. But uh, for the purposes of the Bible, this is where we see juries being formed, is in the ten family congregations. They would sit down and judge this matter. We see it with Boaz and Ruth. And, of course, we had it here in America where juries would decide fact and law. If you look up the word jury at preparing you or or nullification at preparing you, you'll see a number of our articles and recordings and even letters back and forth between me and the judge as to does the jury have the right to decide fact and law. Most juries today do not. But why? Well, that's what we explained in that. But again, that's part of that environment in which the Gospels were written because they had a jury system. They were losing their jury system. They had the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which was the synagogues were ten families. But they were losing the power that had been in the hands of the local congregation and now it was in the hands of a centralized temple. And the Corbin of the Pharisees was a part of that process. But few ministers will tell you what the Corbin of the Pharisees were. They don't even want to look at it. They don't know themselves. Nobody told them in in their uh, seminaries where they went to. Because the heads of the seminaries live in darkness. Just like this uh, Sapolsky, the professor at Stanford University. He thinks there's no God. He thinks there's no spiritual quantum realm in which we can receive revelation. Uh, Desmond Matthias thinks there is. And he talks about all the scientists, top scientists in the world who think they are. That there is something else that influences creation. Some unseen mover. Go back to Aristotle and those guys. They were seeing it. But uh, some people think we're just a pile of chemical reactions. I don't think so. And uh, I I can give you lots of evidence, but uh, if you don't want to see it, you're not going to see it. But if you start seeing the truth about our own error today, which is why all the problems of the world exist, it's because we've had a hundred years of legal charity in this country that is predominated... Uh, what should have been creating the social bonds of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. But we've abandoned that to go the way of Nimrod, the way of Cain, the way of Pharaoh, the way of covetous practices. And of course, Peter says that will make us merchandise. That's what we have to see. Because we have judged that it is okay to covet our neighbor's goods. 
because we don't want to really see the commandments of Christ. And he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's very clear that modern society has not been keeping those commandments. So, when we go into verse 3, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Which, of course, is what I'm saying. Is that we think that it's okay to covet. That's a beam in our eye. And and how do we get rid of that? Well, we have to repent. We have to think differently. And if we think differently, then we also have to act upon what we are now thinking. That we should be living by charity and by hope. So when you gather together in your congregation, it's not just a mutual like we all get together, because we are social creatures. We all get together and we talk about things, you know, like we can talk about the bad people of the world. We talk about how we're not as bad as them. But uh, are we doing anything to get the beam out of our own eye? <laughs> well, the, the way, if, if you've been living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others and... and uh, not taking care of your parents and not educating your children. You need to start making the sacrifice to do all those things without depending upon the men who exercise authority. So that's going to require some sacrifice on your part. But of course you have to choose to do that. And when you do that, that will open up your eyes. And so now when we get into verse 4, Or how wilt thou say to thy brother... Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. So if we're going to make any progress, we've got to turn around on that subject. Otherwise, we might be called a hypocrite, which is what we'll talk about when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back. So, down here in uh, verse 5 now, uh, verses 3 and 4 were clearly pointing out to the Pharisees that they had something wrong, that there was a beam in their eye, which had to do with their unwillingness to look at the beam in their eye. Everybody's willing, like I say, to look at the beam in everybody else's eye, you know, what the bad guys are doing with, you know, Klaus Schwab or the... Economic forum, or you know, Putin, or you know, there's always somebody you can look at that is doing something supposedly bad, you know, Democrat or Republican. You know, if you need to focus on to know thyself, what what aren't you seeing about what you are doing? Because that's going to make a whole lot of difference to let that light in. Otherwise, the whole body becomes dark. And so, like I said, if you, you judge it as okay to desire benefits at the expense of others uh, through men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, then you are engaged in covetous practices that make men merchandise and is a snare and a trap and is the way of Nimrod and the way of Cain and the way of Sumer and the city-states uh, that were cities of blood. And Paul talks about it. He calls it idolatry. He says covetousness is idolatry. 
which we can see in Colossians 3, 5, Ephesians 5, 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 10. Uh, he's constantly repeating the fact that uh, that we need to mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication and cleanliness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Because we are the children of disobedience if we think these things are okay. If covetous practices are okay. We need to see that they're not. And now once we see that they're not, now we can start to think differently. Because that's different than what most people want to think. And But Jesus goes on to compound his statements uh, in 4 and uh, verse 3 by saying, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. Because you've already got it out of your own eye. Then you know what the real problem is. The problem isn't that they don't go to your church. That they don't go to the church established by Jesus Christ. They don't go the way of Jesus Christ. They're, they're not in the pursuit of the happiness that Jesus was talking about in the previous chapters. They're in pursuit of justification of themselves. Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn against and render you. Now, that clearly can have to do with, you know, your pearls, if your pearls are the truth, uh, then he's actually warning you, well, don't tell everybody the truth. Try to tell those people the truth that will receive it. Well, of course, we're supposed to be moving from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will know better than us. But in order to get to the point where we're following the Holy Spirit, we need to see ourselves as we are. We need to see the truth. Because it's the truth that sets us free from this eternal cycle of dopamine and stress and fear and anxiety and trauma that uh, Sapolsky thinks this just makes us all products of the Big Bang. That we're just walking, talking, chemical reactions. But we're not. At least hopefully we're not. And, and we certainly can be more than that. So, is it just about your philosophy? When he says, you know, pearls the swine, etc. He goes on in verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. So Jesus is saying, he's not just talking about your philosophy. He's talking about, you know, what you might need. You know, the, the, 
the things that might sustain you and your family. Because Jesus is the Son of God. And we know that the Roman Son of God is providing the social welfare for the people. He's also known as the Patronus, the Father of Rome. And, of course, a lot of these programs go through the the Senate, who are called the, the fathers, the conscripted fathers of Rome. Because that's where they got their power, by taking their power, or by the relinquishment of the power of the individual fathers and individual families, saying, I don't want to be responsible for my child's education. I don't want to be responsible for taking care of my parents. I don't want to be responsible for taking care of the needy of my society through charity. I I just want the government to do it. And, of course, now the government has your role as a natural father, and you as the natural father of your family, as the head of your family, your head's cut off. You're, You're not the head of your family anymore. The state is. The government is. Pharaoh is, FDR is, whoever, doesn't really matter. Putin is, because you've you've moved from a, a republic to a socialist state, and now the state's going to provide you with whatever you need or you think you need. And you've abandoned the kingdom of God, which was not a socialist state, because it it didn't depend upon forced offerings. Now, the, the Pharisees and Herod had degenerated to the point where they were now dependent upon forced offerings because they had set up this system of registration. You have to pay in. They had, they had taskmasters, Gabi and Molkai, going around counting off your grain and, and the branches, branches of your cumin's plant and making sure that that all went to the temple which could be sold or redistributed and what have you. It's it's completely the antithesis of what Moses had set up. But they had blind eyes. It was the blind leading the blind. They no longer could see as as they should have. And Christ comes along and is, is pointing these things out and calling them hypocrites. Because you've got this beam in your eye. That you don't, you don't live by faith like Abraham did, which Paul will clarify later. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh the door will be open. Or what man is there of you whom if his son asked bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, Will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask of him? Well, how does the Father take care of the needy of society? How did the Father in heaven take care of the needy of society? Through his holy church. Now, how did the apostles provide for the needy? We know Paul was taking aid to Syria and to Corinth and to Ephesus and vice versa when there was a need. 
He was taking up collections in Gaul and taking up collections in Corinth to go out and help people in other parts of the nation with what would literally be his wave offering. And he was doing that on a daily basis. And the Christians could not have survived the decline of the, 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 the decline and fall of the Roman Empire had they not learned how to do this. Which was going to even be more essential in the days to come. When there were wars and earthquakes, etc. And the government of Rome was cutting benefits. It was in decline. It didn't have the money. It spent so much money on military exploits and the military industrial complex of Rome, you know, making all those trebuchets and, you know, catapults and, and armaments. Because it used to be that the, the soldiers brought their own armaments, but now the government was going to provide all these things. So it was good business if you were an armor maker because you got this steady government check coming in. But the the reality was is that it was bankrupting Rome. And the most important thing is it was bankrupting the moral character of the Roman people. This free bread caused them to turn a blind eye to corruption. They would say, well, yeah, he's corrupt, but he, you know, he got us this aqueduct, you know, into our community. And that was really helpful. So, yeah, and, and we made a lot of money working on that aqueduct. You know, which Jesus talks about that. Or, you know, I mean, that was one of the big complaints of the people as they were pilfering the Social Security Fund in Judea. And they were doing it to actually build an aqueduct. And the people complained that you were taking that, those funds away. Those were meant to take care of the needy of their society. Mostly them. They were really cared about. You see, because that's another thing that Sapolsky talks about. Is that if you, without that personal care for the other men, members of your, you know, baboon troop, and that you become less able to deal with stress. But if you have a tribe, a troop, a congregation that where people are actually spending their life or part of their life, part of their resources on caring for other people, that's a reassurance that somebody might be there for you when bad things happen to you. But you have to actually see that in action. You can't just can't just live by pledges. You actually have to see that personal sacrifice in action. Or you'll be plagued with the stress. And the stress will have all kinds of health effects on you. But Christians were healthier, stronger, more uh, resilient, more industrious than almost anybody else in the Roman Empire. And so uh, the more the Roman Empire collapsed, the more they thrived. But Jesus had to set this all up. You know, like I said, you could read the whole Gospel of Matthew in a few hours. But this was days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months of work. 
Jesus didn't just pick 12 apostles. We know he picked the 70 and was sending them out. Just like Moses picked 70 and sent them out. So he's, he's not just talking about magical arrival of what you need. He's, he's talking about the way of the kingdom through which God will work and bring you what you need and provide what you need. But it requires on your part a little faith of casting your bread upon the waters because it is faith that heals you. It is faith that protects you from unwarranted stress. And faith has to be practiced. Just like the muscles in your arms or in your legs. You you have to exercise them in order to make use of them. If you never exercise them, you never use them, they atrophy and disappear. Same with faith. Faith isn't like the cowardly lion who rings his tail and says, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. No, faith is about Stepping out of the boat. It's about taking risks for other people to walk in that faith. That's what Abraham did. He's the man of faith. So in verse 12 we see, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Or law of the prophets. This is the law that the prophets spoke of. This is judging so that you will be judged according to righteousness. Because you care about others as much as you care about yourself. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Which, of course, is what Romans were doing, what the Jews were doing in Judea. They weren't going the narrow gate of righteousness. They were going the broad gate of unrighteousness, which is what we see all over the world today. And so, that you, you know, people think, well, we got to save the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, we kill a million Ukrainians. We're, there needed to be no war. There would have been no war if we had stuck to the original agreement which is to not bring NATO any closer to the Russian border. And then there were other things that were going on behind the scenes that would have sweetened that pot so that there would be no war. And and no way to even excuse the war. But he was baited into it. Just like Caesar baited those poor Gauls into fighting back because they were show, throwing these firebrands into to their their families and killing their families. There were people bombing the Russian-speaking Ukrainians for months and months, for years before Russia invaded. D- did anybody tell you about that? No, the media is all silent about that. Just like they were silent about George Floyd's autopsy. It was there. The record was there. It was visible. But nobody wanted to tell you about that. You know, just like, uh, you know, COVID vaccine. We knew from the Suzuki study, before the vaccine even came out, that any increase in that protein spike in your body would do damages to your liver, to your kidneys, to your heart, 
would cause hypertension, would cause all kinds of heart problems. We knew that. People had already done autopsy after autopsy after autopsy. Published report from Georgetown University, all easily accessible on the internet, uh, where you access these peer-reviewed papers coming out by these uh, renowned scientists. Nobody would tell you. It's all available. That you, whatever, whatever vaccine, you, whatever kind of vaccine that you wanted to take, uh, if you wanted to take one, should not increase the number of spike proteins in your body because it will cause all kinds of other damage to your reproductive organs. They knew that. They'd already cultured it in live tissue and examined it. Studies were already all available for anybody who wanted to look at them. They didn't want to look at them because the, their eye wasn't singular. It wasn't singled out on the truth. that They wanted to believe. And we've heard this for years and years. Your truth. <laughs> if your truth is different than his truth, one of your truths is not the truth. Maybe both of them are not the truth. But they can't both be true at the same time. But I mean, now they're... You know, math is racist. They get started again. You know, that that Oregon is not going to require that a student be proficient in math or reading in order to graduate from public education, high school public education in Oregon. Wow. Wow. Because to require them to be proficient would be racist. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not racist. Uh, but, of course, to even go to public school, to depend upon the government, to take away from your neighbor so you can have free education, is contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ. It is going away from the ways of Christ. So, we're already in trouble. Because we're not going through the straight gate. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly their eye, uh, inwardly they are ravening wolves. Of course, we always see these pictures of, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, etc. What does that really look like? It looks like people who will tickle your ears for money, not tell you the truth for money. Help you avoid the truth of the simplicity of the gospel of the kingdom about loving your neighbor as yourself and actually following the decrees of Christ the King. But they don't want to tell you that. It's all there. It's all available. It's all, all visible. You can You can read it. And that's what we're doing. We're reading right here. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns and figs and thistles? What is their fruits? Well, of course, we have, you know, we have a few priests who molest children. And we have, well, the, there was a Protestant minister up there who sold his daughter uh, to guys as a, a prostitute, his, his teenage, young teenage daughter. He prostituted her out to his buddies. He was a minister. You know, he eventually got caught and went to jail. And the mother wouldn't speak to the daughter anymore because she turned him in. 
It's astounding. It's astounding. But they're all, they all go to church. I think this is up in Primedale or someplace. I, I knew the daughter eventually, but, uh, yeah. It's amazing. He goes on in verse 17, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. The good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can the corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. What's the fruit of the modern church? The entire world has re-entered the bondage of Egypt. The entire world, the parents no longer own their children. Though they like to think they own their children, but they don't. They don't own their house. They don't own their land. Their governments take and take and take and take and take. Why? For the same reason in Samuel 8, God said, this is the nature of the government you will have. It will take and take and take and take and take. And when you cry out, he says in Samuel 8, when you cry out, I'm not going to hear you. He's going another place he says, go and cry unto the gods that you have chosen for yourself. Because, you see, FDR was the son of God. He had the same role as Caesar was when Caesar had the role of son of God. He had the same role that Jesus had when he was called the son of God. But Caesar said it's okay to take from your neighbor through forced offerings to get what you want to have for free, the benefits you want to have, the dainties you want to have from government. I say dainties because we have an article upon dainties because it tells you in Proverbs that if you sit and eat with a ruler, you know, put a knife to your throat if you be a man of appetite. Because he serves deceitful dainties. Why are they deceitful dainties? Because they're a snare and a trap. They will bring you back into the bondage of Egypt. They will make you merchandise. They will curse your children, which Peter says. It's all there. It's all there. We repeat it over and over again. It's not hidden. It's hidden to those who don't want to see. It's to those who want to see. It's staring you right back in the face. But people don't want to see that. They they want to live in denial. They don't want to come together and care about one another. They don't want to cast their bread upon the waters and hope that it might come back to them. They want entitlements. They want guarantees from men who exercise authority. But of course you're going to end up with a government that takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and takes. Until you have nothing left. Until the whole system collapses. That is the unrighteous mammon. The unrighteous system or treasury of your wealth and your golden calf that somebody else is in control of. That's where you've gone. That is the way of iniquity. And and you need to change the way you think in order to see this. You need to open your eyes. You can't even open them. You need to have, let God open your eyes and open your heart with humility so that you can pursue the happiness that God has in store for you. Until then, 
Well, we'll be right back and tell you. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we're down in verse 21 of Matthew. And it starts out very clearly. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And of course, modern church, many of the modern churches say, well, you don't have to keep the commandments. Of course, in John, all over in the Testament, they're telling you that you do have to keep the commandments. Even Paul, you know, again, when they, they, they talk about the law being done away with, they're talking about the laws that were created by Herod and the Pharisees being done away with. The, the laws of compulsory offerings, forced offerings, and the coercive church of the Pharisees, which was back, taking the people back to the bondage of Egypt even then. And, of course, many of, uh, even the kings, you know, this is why we give you the whole story of why Rome was even in uh, Judea. How did they come? Why did they come? Well, they came for the sole purpose of deciding who was the rightful king. They were invited in by Aristobulus to make that choice. And, and the fact that Aristobulus requested them to come, paid them to come, uh, is definite, definite violation of the commands if you have a king. He can't do that. And of course, eventually, the Pompey said that Aristobulus was not the rightful king. And so he was willing to support Hyrcanus. But Hyrcanus, at least Hyrcanus, did not ask for the support of a foreign government to keep himself in in the position of the king. And that, it's a whole fascinating story, but we, we want to get through the rest of Matthew. So we have Matthew 7 completely covered. and But he's very clearly saying, it's not enough that you say you believe. It's not enough that you say, Lord, Lord. It's not enough to say you've accepted Jesus and even, or that you're born again. And of course, like I say in the, in the clauses on being born again, it tells you that no, you, there, there's a way in which you can tell whether or not you're really born again. It's not about your truth. It's not about your imagination. It's it's about what really actually exists. And he's telling you in the verses just before this, you know, the the fruit of your faith should be liberty under God and the kingdom of God. And, you know, where you return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. That's not what has taken place. The reverse is taking place, which we see in verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? Or healed the sick? Or, you know, build hospitals? Haven't we done all these things? In thy name? 
but and in thy name done many wonderful works. You can guess what those are. But then in verse 23 he says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye work, ye that work iniquity, which is basically the workers of iniquity. And of course, I have links there to our article on what's iniquity. Well, there's all kinds of things that would qualify as iniquity. Uh, While the modern church has concluded from an interpretation of Paul that all you have to do is believe and you are saved by grace, we are saved by grace, but what makes everyone so sure they are saved? What makes them so sure that their belief is actually a belief in Jesus Christ and not simply an ideology created by people who spent too much time in a seminary. You know, belief, and and there's actually tests in court that they use, you know. Belief is not what you think is true. Belief is a conviction that compels action on your part. You, you, we, we talked about this, you know, where the people say, well, your religion is a choice. But being gay is not a choice. We're, we, we, we can't alter that. No. True religion by faith, there, there's a choice somewhere. But once you make that choice, now what you believe in is automatic. You, you can't go down that road. It's just something stops you. Cause that's, that's what belief is the, the Greek word, it's a conviction. It's something you cannot change of yourself. Now, if you go somewhere else in your life, maybe you can change it if you decide to, you know, but you have to, you know, get reinserted in the matrix, so to speak, and, and denounce your faith, your belief. You have to choose to go the other way. And and I believe that everybody has that option. But if you truly... I mean, Peter denounced Christ. But Christ said, but I'll pray for you. Help alleviate that burden of your denouncing me. Because you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. Because you don't really believe as much as you think you believe. It's a lot of head belief. But Jesus knew deep down. But he had to get deep down to get to that belief. In order to get deep down into your heart and into your mind and into your soul. To know thyself. What you really believe and what you don't really believe. Requires that you're willing to see everything that's in the dark places of your own heart. And people don't always want to do that. You know, like if 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 you want to know somebody, if you want to get married and know somebody and all this stuff, you need to know yourself first. You can't know others until you know yourself, because you don't know you by what judgment you will judge. And and the whole gospel is about bringing you to a realization of who you are and who you are not. 
So anyway, when we look at these verses, like verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And that rock is Christ. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell not. It's all the stress that that Professor Sapolsky is talking about. It, it doesn't fall because you have some other source of strength that doesn't come simply from you. It's the foundation upon which you stand. And fell not, for it was founded upon the rock. But in verse 26 we see, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be like unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended upon the, uh, descended. And the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it, which is where we're at today. The modern Christianity is not built on the rock. It's built on a perception of the rock created by the modern church. And 40,000 different denominations of the modern church. But it's not really built on the doctrines of Jesus Christ. The decrees of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm not tearing it down. I'm just trying to bring the light where there is darkness. So that we can see this. But you have to... You know, it doesn't do any good if I have a light inside of my... I have my pack over here that I take up in the mountains. If I put my flashlight on... and put it in the pack and close the pack all up, you won't know it's on. <laughs> it won't get in your eyes. It won't it won't reveal anything to you. But if I put the light out where you can see it, then you have to make a choice whether you're going to see the light and all that it reveals or if you're going to continue to dwell in darkness like you were before the show started. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a longer ago than that. I assume that our regular listeners are starting to see. But you have to become a doer. You can't just see the truth. You can't just listen year after year after year. I have people listen for seven years, ten years. I keep hearing different amounts of the story. But they're not in a congregation. They're not sacrificing daily. They're not becoming the stone of the living temple of God. They're listening and say, well, that's true. Well, that's true. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to be a doer of these sayings. Oh, I'll help out people now and then. I'm a nice guy. But that's not kingdom. Kingdom is actually blocks coming together, organizing. You don't want to be like Korah, the sheep, out on the desert. (laughs) For all those who listened all that long, you've probably heard some Korah stories. Oh, which may become horror stories for you if you do not repent and start doing what Christ said. And he said a lot of things, which we'll see in Matthew and Mark. And it came to pass that when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished 
and his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, I put a footnote in on the page for the word authority there because it's a particular word that he uses, authority there. It's, it's not always translated authority. Most of the time it's translated power like we see in Romans 13. Let every man remain subject to the higher power. That's, that's the same word that we're seeing there. Well, is the higher power in your life Jesus Christ? Or is the higher power in your life Joseph Biden or Donald Trump? Or or if you're in another country, is it Putin? Or is it, is it you know, I, I don't even, I can't even think of all the leaders' names. <laughs> Trudeau. Is that the higher power in your life? Uh, is he the authority? No. If the king has spoken. And he spoke with authority. And he should be the higher power in your life. And the way you know if he's the higher power in your life is are you sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and creating a system of social welfare based on love instead of on force. Because if you're you're basing it on force like FDR and LBJ and all these other guys, you're not, Christ is not the higher power in your life. You have to actually do what he's saying here. Like I say, 69 times it's tra- that word is translated power. In Romans 13, that's what you see. Let every man remain subject to the higher power because all power is of God. There is no power but of God. Anyone opposes power opposes God. Now, some translation will say government there. But Jesus was a government. He was the king. He was the Christ. And, and like the 29 times the word is translated authority. And here is one of the places it's a translated authority. But you know, it's also translated right. It's also translated liberty. It's also translated jurisdiction. <laughs> so Jesus is saying here, that uh, that he's he's a man speaking as having a jurisdiction, ha- having a right, ha- having the authority, having the power of government, because he did have the power of government, and he taught them, saying, "These are the decrees coming from Jesus the Christ, the Anointed, the Messiah, the Messiah." You know, if Israel over there is having all this trouble now with uh, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not, I don't think of people in, in the sense of countries. I think of people as individuals. And there's lots of individuals, you know, in, in all the different nations surrounding Israel, etc. And there's a lot of people there. And I, I'm not on the side of Israel. I'm not on the side of Hamas. I'm not on the side of the Gaza Strip. I'm on the side of righteousness. And, you know, that, that can become complicated in the day-to-day events, you know, because the, the players and people are changing constantly. I don't know if the solution is to invade the Gaza Strip and attack all those people who are doing this. I don't know if that's the solution. And, and it's not my choice to make. 
But I can tell you this, that Israel, if it got away from the last remaining vestiges of socialism and controlling their neighbor and forcing vaccination, all these things that we see come up in the last few years, even though, like I said, and Netanyahu rolled back their socialism and it gave the country all kinds of strength. Well, if you don't just roll it back or a pant of it. Go back to the system that Moses set up. Because it's the same system that Jesus Christ set up. And you will have power that, that, that the strong man that Jesus talks about was going to need. Because right now, evil wants you to both go into destruction. <laughs> and all those countries round about you go into destruction. Your defense is God, the Father, who art in heaven. That's your ultimate defense. What you do with on a day-to-day basis, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But this is going to be the same. Whatever we see played out there is going to be played out in the United States as well. Evil wants to destroy mankind. Christ wants you to have life more abundant. And Jesus came that you might be saved from the foolish men of the world. He wants you to be a wise man and build your house upon the rock of righteousness. But if you insist upon not doing that, then you're not building on faith, you're building on force. The more you go back, and see, that's the amazing thing about the kingdom of God. If you lived in Israel, if you lived in Canada, you lived in Uruguay, wherever you live, Soviet Union, China. If you start gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity and seeking that kingdom of God and his righteousness, a miraculous thing will start to take place in that little congregation. But that little congregation cannot isolate itself because it has to care about the next congregation and the congregation on the other side of the planet as much as it cares about itself. That that principle is repeated over and over and over again. But for the last 100 years, people by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions, by the billions have been coveting their neighbor's goods the men who exercise authority. Have been desiring benefits at, until they become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others. They have degenerated so that even though they see corruption before them, they can't do anything about it. They can't alter it. Because they're a scattered flock. I know flocks. And the sheep, when they're out on the desert, they're spread out in a scattered flock because they're eating. But they all keep an eye on one another. They're not that scattered out. The old sheep, Korah, she was not a ranged sheep. She was a black-faced sheep that we kept because she was so, had good number of uh, lambs and was very uh, good milk and very prolific. 
But she did not stay with the herd. She was always dividing the herd. I got a hundred stories about her. She's gone now. <laughs> but I, I, I am here that you might be saved. But it requires that you repent. That you become a doer of the doctrines of Christ. That you begin to see the error of the house that is built on sand. Built on force. And we'll see this coming up again and again and again. But if we will not judge what is good and what is evil based upon the revelation of God, which we see repeated over and over again in the biblical text, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, then we our eyes will be darkened. And we'll not see the dangers coming. And there are many dangers coming. And so we need to repent of that. Turn around. And go the other way. So that we're no longer counted amongst those. Who are exercising authority. One over the other. In order to obtain the benefits at the expense of our neighbor. But instead we are exercising love. By personal sacrifice. And caring about others as much as we would want others to care about us. That is the theme of Matthew 7. That is the theme of the whole Bible. Now, I, I started out, and of course we see it right away in in uh, Matthew 8, which we will get to in a great deal of detail in a subsequent show. But it talks about Jesus coming down from the mountain. And that there's multitudes following him. Now, in your mind, that's going to create a picture of, you know, some of these crowd scenes that we see in the movies. Where all these people are following him. You know, Jesus of Nazareth had them, you know, people are coming everywhere. He's just surrounded by all these people. But the very next line, he meets a leper. Well, lepers couldn't even come near you. You know, they were supposed to make noise so that nobody got near a leper or anything like that. They had to stay out of town and they would come to certain places to get food or help. But uh, they weren't to come near a person. But he's, it says he worshipped him, saying, Lord. Of course, that's what he's, he's recognizing Jesus as the Lord. Thou, the, the king, the ruler. Thou wilt... Thou canst make me clean. If thou wilt, your will, canst thou make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand. They had to go up to him and touched him. He touched a leper. And he says, I will. At the same time, he says, I will. Be thou clean. And immediately the leper was cleaned. But then he tells them, go tell no man to do this. To, to tell no man to do this? How, aren't there crowds following them everywhere? No, we have this movie vision of the gospel. This is taking place over years of time, months of time, weeks of time. All kinds of people now are working on establishing the kingdom of God, seeking the kingdom of God. Seventy are going out there preaching the same message that Jesus is preaching. He's already taught them. 
Now he has these 12 disciples. And he's teaching them. And we hear that story recorded in the Gospels. But people are changing. They're going from one system of Corbin to the Corbin of Christ. And this is going to alter the nature of the people of Judea and the people of Corinth and the people of uh, Rome, people of Gaul, people of Ephesus, all over. This other system is interconnected all over the known world and evidently going on over there in Parthia at the same time. Because Parthia's government is coming to a head. And it's also coming to destruction. Because like I said in a previous show, eventually Trajan conquered Parthia. But what did he do with all the Christians? Trajan said, leave the Christians alone. Is that because he ran into so many Christians in Parthia? (laughs) We're always in a minority and they will probably be in a minority in America and in Canada and in Australia. They will always be in a minority. But with the power of God, a minority has a great deal of power. So you want to be there. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.